Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 6, the New Testament portion that we have selected that goes with this Torah portion. And by the way, this Torah portion of the crossing the Red Sea and then getting manna for the first time and all of the events took place there, there's a tremendous amount of teaching that uh, goes with that portion. Many, many lessons to be learned from it. Uh, and this portion here in John chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse, um, we're going to begin at verse uh, 16, and we're going to go all the way over into all of uh, chapter 6. And, um, uh, and there's a tremendous parallel that Yeshua is going to make with the disciples and the brethren that he has that goes back to the Torah portion. Uh, let me begin by reading some of, beginning at chapter 6, at verse uh, 16. Let me actually start at verse 15. Let me start there so you can give a, a bigger context. Yeshua, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Yeshua had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing, and when therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Yeshua walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land. Now, before I go any further, let's make sure we understand what's the setting here. Yeshua had that afternoon beforehand had fed the thousands. 
you know, and this was the feeding of the 5,000 that took place. And they had had, and they had loaded up in the boat the baskets of bread, leftover bread, and the baskets of the fish, the food, and they weren't going to let it spoil. They were going to make sure that they, you know, it was like the first case, of biblical case of leftovers, you know, I always call, and they were going to take advantage of them. And the, the people had seen this incredible miracle of Yeshua making food for everybody. And so, you, so when it makes a statement that the people were of a mind to take him by force and make him king, there's a real solid reason why they wanted to do it. It was not necessarily because he was a great administrator or he was a great leader or a great orator. It's he could make bread. And if you, were, if you made him king, boy, everybody would have all the food they need. And so they thought that was an ideal world. That, was, that certainly fit into some people's definition of what the kingdom of God would be like. And so they wanted to make him king. And he knew that wasn't right. And so something interesting happened. He split from the disciples at that moment. And he proceeds off toward the mountains. And they get in the boats and start going up to, toward Capernaum on the sea of, uh, sea of Galilee. Now, I've actually been at the place, uh, and those of you who may have gone on a tour, there is a specific place that is known where this event took place. In fact, there is actually a, a very famous mosaic that's in a floor of a, of a, a church that is there that shows the two fishes and the loaves. And, uh, and we know the specific place. Historically, has been um, repeated from generation to generation. This was the place. Now, when you stand there, it, it's kind of a shallow area. It's flat. And you, it's very easy how you can see. You'd be at the banks of the Sea of Galilee. You could get in a boat. And you're going to travel straight north. And as you go north, you'll be getting out into the sea more and more until you come uh, up over... Uh, to the north to Capernaum, and Capernaum is north of there, but it's quite a ways north. What Yeshua did was, it says here, is that he departed from him, and he went for the mountains. He went to be alone in the mountains. From that location, there's one set of mountains. It's to the south and slightly to the east. So the direction he went was further south and to the east, whereas they were going north. So this is clearly they're separating themselves from each other. And the distance from those mountains to where Capernaum at is a great distance. It, it would take you probably the better part of a day uh, to walk there if, if you were journeying to that location. Just immediately to the south of that location is the famous city Tiberias, which was a Roman city that was there on the Sea of Galilee. And basically good observant Jews kind of steered clear of that place. They didn't really go there, but, the, but there was a lot of people that lived there. And when Yeshua had done this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, people had come from the, all of those different communities. There. And there were a lot of communities. There was some inland. There was Tiberias had. It's a, that was a major city in that time. And so that's how you got thousands of people to come to hear him teach. It's in the immediate area was where it's at. And when he fed them, and by the way, they, they didn't have McDonald's and Wendy's, you know, along the way. Uh, you know, that was a major serious miracle for them to take place. 
Now what happens is they, they separate and they uh, are from each other, but a, but a storm comes up and a wind comes up on the Sea of Galilee. With the orientation I just gave you from the Sea of Galilee, the wind would have come, the natural winds of storms come out of the northwest, from the west and the northwest in that region. And so the wind and the storm would have come from Capernaum and that area across the sea. And it would have been, if they got out there and they got caught in a storm, the very place they're trying to get to is they have to, they're having to sail and go into the storm to get there. So it was very difficult. The, the best you could do is, is cut sideways from the storm or let the storm blow you all the way across the Sea of Galilee. And so when they got up there and they got into the storm, where they're intending to go is exactly opposite of where the storm, storm is, is taking them. The storm is not blowing them to the destination. The storm is against them in the destination where they're going to. Now here comes, in the middle of the night, when they're fighting for their lives out there, because a storm like that, if the seas get bad enough, it can swamp a boat. These fishing boats, you know, and you've got 11 guys in the boat, uh, and, and usually fishermen, there would be two or three fishermen using the boat to catch fish. You got 11 guys on the boat, so you, and then you've loaded up with all this other stuff, so the boat's overloaded. And then it gets in a storm, and there's no reason why it doesn't blow them further out into the sea, swamp the boat, and they all drown. You know, so their lives were in danger. They were truly afraid uh, of being caught on there. And by the way, some of the men in this boat are very experienced guys. Uh, you know, Peter was very experienced uh, sailing on the Sea of Galilee, doing fishing work, and he knew what the consequences could be of this, and he was very concerned. Now, here comes Yeshua. He's walking on the water. And um, they invite him into the boat. And so there's other gospels that go into greater detail about this. And, you know, Peter comes out and he wants to walk on the water too and all that. But what I'm trying to tell you is there was incredible conflict here. Everything seemed to be opposed to him. You know, he went the other direction. The storm's coming the wrong way. Just everything is working contrary to what would be an acceptable solution to the disciples. However, he gets in the boat, and then the scripture miraculously says, then suddenly they find themselves at Capernaum. Now, the boat did not sail to Capernaum on its own. And it didn't get there by the seamanship of the people that were in the boat. Something incredible happened there about how God moved that boat just as much as God walked on the water. There's a lot of miracle that took place here. And it's being recorded for us that this was an incredible event that transpired. This comes on the heels of feeding 5,000. So if you're looking for Yeshua doing incredible miracles, you don't have to go much further than right here. There's some incredible. Had you been there that day and you had seen this, this would have been stunning to you. And it wouldn't have just been one thing. In the course of a whole day, things were happening that just didn't make sense. And, and Yeshua seems to be in the very center of them, and, and, and things are happening because of him. Now, with that set up, they're at Capernaum. It, it, the story now picks up for us as to what about the other people? What are the other people that he had fed? What, what's going on with them? 
So it says here, verse 22, The next day the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Yeshua had not entered with his disciples into the boat, that his disciples had gone uh, away alone. Now, they see, they saw Yeshua go toward the mountains. They saw the disciples get loaded up in the boat and sail off. They knew for a fact that Yeshua was not in that boat, that he had not gone on the same journey with the disciples. And they had seen Yeshua went this way, and the bread in the boat went that way. Verse 23. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. What that means is not only were there some of the people who had ate the bread before, but there were people who had heard about this bread thing that had taken place the day before. And there were people coming who had not eaten of the bread before, but they wanted to see this. They wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to see if this would happen again. Verse 24, and when the multitude therefore saw that Yeshua was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Yeshua. They got on boats and they headed straight north. Now, if you could have gotten there on land, but it's much shorter uh, if you could get in a boat and go there. You could do a straight thing, whereas you have to walk around the, the edge of the, the sea and other terrain that you'd have to cross. Um. And then it says, there, it says, verse 24, and when, the, when they saw that, they went to Capernaum seeking Yeshua. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron because they knew Yeshua went the other direction. All they knew is the bread had gone there, but they knew the disciples had gone there, and they figured, hey, there's probably a good chance that in the immediate near future, Yeshua is going to be back with them again. So it says they went seeking Yeshua, but the truth of the matter is they weren't seeking Yeshua. They were chasing the bread. That's what they were really looking for. And Yeshua is going to confront them on that. What is your real motivation? Where's your heart really at? Um, verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, in other words, they show up and all of a sudden Yeshua is there. Now, he didn't take the boat that they saw, they knew he went the opposite and they're going, how the heck did you get here? How, I, thought, I thought you went somewhere else. And it's very clear they were not expecting him to be there, even though, quote, they were seeking him. So the seeking them is what they had said to people. They were actually chasing the bread. And now they're shocked that he's there. And Yeshua answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, but not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And he's flat confronting them on what is coming out of their mouth as to what they claim is their purpose. And he's challenging what's coming out of their mouth and saying, No, you're not, you claim to seek me, but you're not really seeking me. You're, you're after the bread. Just stop and think here for a moment. We're talking about some real core issues of what do we really believe. Um, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, did they really believe in the Lord who had shown them many signs? 
all the judgments that had happened in Egypt, um, the death of the firstborn, had they really believed. And then he takes them down to a place where they cross the Red Sea. I mean, God opens the sea. They walk across on dry land, and they're now in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud is leading them. Do they really believe in God? And one of the things that becomes apparent in the, in the uh, Torah portions is that we all know that they really didn't trust or believe God yet. They, were, they wanted to escape. They, they didn't want to be oppressed by the Egyptians anymore. And by the way, circumstances happened where they kind of were forced to leave. Uh, so they were willing to do that. But did they really trust the Lord about all of that stuff? Not yet. I mean, can you trust the Lord that he'll feed you in a place where there's no food, like the manna? Well, here is the same group of people in the days of Yeshua. They claim they're seeking him, they're following him. They're not really recognizing the signs that he's done. They're not believing him, although he's doing the works of God for them. They're more, they have more questions about it than, than belief, and they're just looking for the bread, too. Just like our ancestors did coming out of Egypt. You know, as long as you're going to feed me, I'm okay, great. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and say that I believe in you. I really don't. I don't really trust you. And the, um, here's Yeshua confronting them about, you know, I think you're really after the bread. I don't think you really believe me. I don't think you believe the signs I've shown you. I, I don't think you're really trusting me. And he's going to confront them about this. Uh, and he gets rather bold and direct with the people that are there with him. Um, let, me, let me draw some immediate application here for a moment. You know, let's be honest with each other. We all admit that we love God, that we're seeking God, we want to know God. And on some occasions, we'll go ahead and say, yeah, we know God, we love God to, to other people, and so that we're accepted by one another. Christians are, are quick to say, oh, I'm a Christian. But if you get down to the real stuff about, well, do you really believe what God has said? And do you know what God has said? Are you, are you really plugged into what God has done and is doing? Do you really understand? Do you know him? That's when uh, all of a sudden the rubber hits the road and things are not quite like we thought they were. Even in our messianic movement, even with some of the brethren coming out of the church, grew up in the church the whole life, and they come to us and they want to learn about the Torah and learn about the things that we teach them and so forth, we just assume they're Christians. We assume they believe God. We assume they believe in the Messiah. And we see even from our ranks, people fall away from the faith. And in reality, we discover they never knew the Lord to begin with. They never did believe in him. They never knew him. They, what they had done is they had played the game, joined the crowd, and had just walked around with nice people who all said the same thing and said, oh yeah, we believe in God, and was willing to behave and be a good person, but when it came to did they really trust and believe God, they just didn't do it. 
I am in the, uh, in the process of building a new teaching, which I intend to share this springtime, and it's some of, some of the personal application that I have drawn um, dealing with the process of the, that I lost my wife. And one of the things that has struck me uh, in reflecting and thinking back about my marriage and so forth was the Lord quickened unto me how many times I was trying to teach her how to trust me. And that when I was successful at getting her to trust me, that the marriage was wonderful. But there were times when she had her own thing, and she didn't trust me on that. She'd try to do her own thing, and, and those were times when things didn't quite work out okay. There were struggles. There was difficulties. And it hit me, in reflecting on my own marriage, it hit me, oh my goodness, you know, the Lord is our husband, we're his bride, and what is he constantly trying to teach us to do? To trust him. He's constant. Almost every lesson from Yeshua is, trust me, believe in me, have confidence in me. And in this particular case, he's trying to prove to him, you can trust me that you won't starve to death. Whatever your need is, you can trust me. If you're in a storm and the storm is blowing absolutely contrary to where you want to go, you can trust me. I'll get you where you need to go. I'll, I'll lead you. I'll, I'll, I'll be a cover for you. I'll protect you. Just All you have to do is just trust me and let me take care of it for you. But if you want to do it on your own, then you're stopping me from doing it. And you could live with the results of you doing it on your own. Or you could trust me and I'll show you that I'll do it and you will definitely like the results. And this is a, a place, you know, John's gospel, of course, is written for the purpose to try to get you to believe in the Messiah. You know, in fact, John 20, he gives the purpose of the book. I've written all of these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and that believing in him, you'll receive the gift of eternal life. That's the purpose of the book. And so he's giving us instances where Yeshua was teaching the disciples how to believe in him. And he was using the things that are common to all of us about our needs. That he will meet those needs. And that's how, why, how and why you want to trust him. Now, there's not a person of us who doesn't have needs. Struggles. Shortages. Of, you, know, you have things you need. And we are in a constant thing of trying to meet those needs, satisfy those needs. And um, they, for the most part, pretty much come down to, well, how many resources do you really have to meet the need? Like in the case of, do you have enough money to meet the need? I got to pay the rent. I got to buy groceries. I, get, I need gasoline for the car. Uh, do I have enough resources and to, to cover those? And by the way, that's the reason why I go off to work, and that's the reason why I do the things, is so I can get the resources so I can take care of these needs. And a lot of times in our life, especially we Americans in the world that we live in, the country we live in, is for the most part, there's enough prosperity going around that the most basic of needs are being met. 
Now, when it comes to wants, we always have way more wants than we have resources, and sometimes we get that confused and think those are needs, but they're not really. For example, the, the children of Israel fought eating um, melons and leeks and free fish in Egypt, that that, that that was really how the world worked. Well, that's the way how the world worked back then, but that's not the way the world works. You know, that's not where your life is really at. And so he was trying to teach them uh, that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was the big lesson that God is trying to teach the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's the reason why he took them there, was to teach them to trust him. Here's Yeshua with his disciples. He's trying to teach them to trust him. Every successful husband in his marriage will be endeavoring to teach his wife to trust him. It's the same lesson again and again. So here's Yeshua, and the multitudes show up, and he confronts them with um, what they really believe at that point and why are they doing what they're doing. And, and they're not really seeking him. They're really to believe in him. They're really just chasing the bread. And uh, so look here at verse 27. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, what shall we do that we may uh, work the works of God? In other words, by the way, that sounds great. Now, what do we have to do to be a part of that? Yeshua answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God for you is to believe in God. Almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? Number one task that the Lord's trying to teach me is to just believe in him and trust him. Wow. Well, haven't we already accomplished that? Well, it turns out not really. And the same, I'll speak for you all, and not really for you either. Because it seems like every time he goes to check us on this, we fall apart. Every time we have a need, a struggle, a storm, huh, you know, woe's me. Nobody stands up and says, well, praise God, we got a storm here. God's going to you know, deliver us once again. Praise the Lord. I mean, we have to go through the storm first, and we rethink it through, and then we go, Oh, God, could you help me on this? And then we get back in it. Where was the belief at the start of the storm? Turns out it wasn't really there. It wasn't that strong, was it? It's after the storm that we think we have it. If your faith in God is really where it's supposed to be, when needs and other things come, you power through them. You live by the power of God. That's how you walk. By the power of God through all of those kinds of things. But when it's weak and you fall apart and you're strained and there's difficulty, then what you need from the Lord is encouragement and you've got to go back to this basic lesson and you've got to learn how to believe in Him again. You have to learn how to trust Him um, for it. Uh, I'm going to share a little personal story uh, with you uh, out of my marriage with Lynn, and this will be part of that future teaching, but it's appropriate for me to do it here 
at this point. There came a time when Lynn and I, we were married, and this was before we had children, and we were happy, and, um, and everything was going great. I, I thought everything was wonderful. And one night, Lynn, um, uh, at the end of the day, toward the evening as we were getting ready to go to bed, I could tell she was distressed about something. I could tell she wasn't happy. Something was not right. And so as we concluded the evening, we got into bed and confronted her a little bit. And I said, Lynn, I'm, I'm detecting that you're concerned about something, that you're not happy about something. Is, is there something bugging you? Is there something bothering you? And she said, well, yes, there is. And I said, well, tell me about it. What, what, what's going on? And she said, um, we only have $2.38 in the bank account. And I went, $2.38, that's all there is? Yes, that's all there is in the bank account. So I then said, okay, well, are all the bills paid? I mean, do we have any bills coming in before the next paycheck? And she said, no, all the bills are paid. That's okay. So I said, well, do we have groceries in the pantry? Have we gone to the grocery store? Did, you know, do we have enough groceries to get us until the next payday? Oh, yeah, the pantry's full. I went to the store. We have all the groceries we need. Okay. Do we have gas in the cars? I mean, how much gas have you got? Oh, I just filled up my gas tank. And, and I said, well, I just filled up mine. I said, we have plenty of gas in the cars, clearly enough that will get us past the next payday. I said, so what's the need? And she was like, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with this. I just don't feel secure. Well, that was the magic word for me. Oh, you don't feel secure, so you, you, you're having difficulty trusting the situation you're in. You don't trust it, do you? You feel uncomfortable with it. Yes, I don't trust it right now. Well, I'm your husband, and I am to provide and make you feel secure. And so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I said, tell me how much money needs to be in the bank account for you to feel secure. Well, she wrestled with that for a little bit, but I tried to pin her down to an amount. And she finally agreed that if there were $200 in the bank account, $202.38, that she would feel much better, she wouldn't be concerned, that she could trust the situation she's in, she wasn't, wasn't, didn't feel insecure. And so I announced to her, I said, all right, dear, I'm going to get that for you tomorrow. I'm going to get you another $200, and I'm going to get it into the bank account for you. And she immediately went into the unbelief thing. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, payday is not until such and such. How, how could you possibly do that? I said, dear, that's my problem. That's what I will take care of. I said, you just trust me, and I'll make this happen for you. If that's what you need, I'll get it for you. So she, said, she kept going around, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? And I said, just trust me. I'll make it happen. You really want that there? You want that $200 in the bank account? Tomorrow at 5 o'clock, you'll have it. So the next morning, I got up. She was still wondering how I was going to pull that off. And I walked in the living room, and I picked up that Magnavox TV, put it in the trunk of the car, went out at lunchtime, and sold it for $200, and put that $200 in the bank account for it. And to tell you the truth, we didn't have a TV for the next year, and it was probably some of the happiest times in our marriage. 
and it was meeting the need. And the principle there was, if I could teach her to trust me and that we could live in that environment of feeling secure and, and that you could trust, happiness, blessings came forth. But of course, there's no blessings when you're all concerned about stuff. There's no fun when you're all concerned about things. I have many other instances in my life where God has taken me in to teach me to trust him. I've learned how to trust him with money. Had I not learned those early lessons about how to trust the Lord, I don't believe I'd be in the ministry today. Because in the ministry today, I don't have a big pile of money sitting in a bank account to do this ministry. Every month, we do this ministry, and we do not have the money that I need to conduct business for the next month. And yet, we start doing it, and God meets the need. And by the way, we're not talking about $2.38 anymore. We're talking about to run this ministry, it's $80,000 a month for all the work that we do. I don't have $80,000 the start of the month. We've only been doing this for 22 years. By the way, let me go ahead and revise and tell you that as our marriage matured, the $200 figure for Lynn's security moved to $2,000. There had to be $2,000 in the bank account in, in the later years. Again, principles and lessons about trusting. Here's Yeshua trying to teach them. Believe in me. Trust me. There is no issue in your life that I cannot address or meet the need for. And by the way, if you continue to trust and believe in me, wonderful things will happen for you. In my case, it was a happy marriage. In his case, he says, eternal life. If we'll trust him, it results in the joy of eternal life being raised from the dead, living forever, not dying, not being forgotten, but being in a place where you know folks and they know you and you live forever. Now, let me read a little bit further of what Yeshua has to say just as a kind of a conclusion to this. Verse 31, Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Yeshua therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. That is the, man, that bread makes all kinds of sense to me. Let's get that bread. And he says, Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, is he really talking about rainbow bread or wonder bread there? Is he really talking about some soft drink or something you would like to drink at lunch? No. Obviously, there's a bigger picture here. And the bigger picture is about life and trusting God. 
Uh, this particular passage of scripture is one of the ones that I usually teach. Uh, if I go, if I get invited by a, a regular Christian church, and I get an opportunity to speak to them, by the way, that isn't that often. Uh, but if I get invited, and I have done this in the past, um, I have a very simple teaching based on this passage of scripture. I usually take people to this passage remind them of it. And then I look to the audience and, and I have some very simple questions that I want to ask the audience. I say, um, uh, let me ask you this. I said, have you said recently or you have heard it said recently by someone, you know, I'm just not getting fed there. I'm still thirsty. I'm not quite satisfied where my faith is at, and, and, and I'm, I'm still looking. And by the way, typical American Christians will, in the course of their lifetime, be members of at least four different churches trying to find something that makes sense for them. Matter of fact, there's a stronger evidence that Americans are nomads when it comes to spirituality than they are stable sitting in a church. Churches aren't getting it for them. They're not getting fed. They are still dissatisfied. There's something more. They know there is, and they struggle with it. When I usually ask that question, virtually every hand goes in the air. Every one of them testify that they have that sense of things. That's when I take them back to this passage, and I say, well, Yeshua said that he was a bread, that if you ate of him, you'd never be hungry again. He said that if you... Uh, he was a drink, that if you drank of him, you'd never be thirsty again. Now, we're not talking about actual bread we eat, and we're not talking about an actual drink we drink. We're talking about life. We're talking about things that are really satisfying to us in, in our faith. And I said, why is it that he said he those things, completely satisfying in those things, but you say you're a believer and you're not satisfied? I said, so let's analyze this for a moment. Did what Yeshua say here, was that really true? I mean, that's a nice idea. That's a, boy, that's a nice advertisement for the Messiah. Sounds good. But, it, you know, he kind of oversold himself. He's, he, he's good, but he's not quite that good. And you guys are all standing here believing in him. Is he really that good to you? Is he that good and because you all testified to me and say, no, you're still hungry and you're still thirsty. So what is going on here? Is he, again, not as good as he claims he is? Or is there really more of the reality that you have not eaten the bread and drank the cup yet? And you really don't believe in him like he talked about here. You're just chasing the bread like those people. Which is it? Which do you think is more likely? Well, that's a very powerful message, especially when you're talking to someone who's been going to church all of their life, <laughs> and they think they got it all figured out already. And suddenly the reality hits and says, oh, I, I guess I don't believe in him that way. And, of course, Yeshua goes on to challenge them even more about that unbelief and about that. And he's basically saying, if that's where you're at, you're not with him yet. You're not with him yet. 
you're dabbling with the idea to believe in him, but you haven't yet made the decision really to believe in him, and you're not acting on that faith and belief in him. And so life is not as good as he said it would be. Instead, you're still struggling in your needs and don't know what to do with it. The children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, got manna. They were hungry when they got it. And God purposely said, I suffered you to be hungry so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Yeshua is giving the exact same lesson to them right there. That's the same lesson God, <laughs> through Moses, did. And he's doing the same thing. Well, you know, if that lesson was being taught today, I wonder if we would come up with any different definition on that lesson than what Moses and that crowd did or Yeshua with his disciples did. I wonder how we would measure up from this lesson from God. I would hope that we would measure up and having seen all the signs of God, understanding all the miracles and works of God that he's done, that we would finally see the wisdom of what he said and we finally would cross over and commit ourselves fully to trust him. I would hope that it would be that. And that it wouldn't be instead being caught up in the storms of life here and the other difficult things and all of that would occupy them. So this is a pretty powerful lesson, and this is Yeshua's teaching of the Torah portion of the giving of the manna. Yeshua is actually teaching the Torah here. Very few people know that, but he is. Amen? Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.